Pellicle is proudly sponsored by Lochran Brewers Select, a seventh generation family owned business based near Dundalk in Ireland. In 2014, James Lochran established Lochran Brewing Stores in order to supply high quality brewing ingredients to the burgeoning beer industries in the UK, Ireland, and mainland Europe. The business expanded in 2022 when ingredient wholesaler Brewers Select joined the Lochran family, expanding its suppliers within the brewing ingredient and raw material industry. Some of those suppliers include Crosby Hops, a family-owned hop farm in Oregon, USA, Baird's Malt here in the UK, and industry-leading yeast producer Lalamond. Thanks to their support, we're able to pay more writers, photographers, and illustrators than ever before, and invest in special projects like this podcast. Thanks again to Lochran Brewers Select, who you can find out more about by visiting brewersselect.co.uk forward slash pellicle. And now... Let's get on with the show. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Pellicle Podcast with me, Matthew Curtis, and the fourth in five instalments of episodes that we recorded up at Fine Ales at last year's Fine Fest. This time around, we're turning our attention to one of the biggest subjects in beer at the moment, one that in every brew house across the country or across the world is being discussed, sustainability. Now, if you know anything about brewing, you'll know that brewing itself is an incredibly energy-intensive process. It basically involves heating up liquid and cooling it down again over and over again and then packaging it into whether it's aluminium or glass, something that has to be moved around via logistics and actually uses quite a lot of energy to make. So beer, that is a very energy intensive process. But more than that is it fundamentally relies on intensive industrial agriculture at a massive scale. And I'm talking about barley and hops. And actually, that is where most of beer's carbon footprint is and where, for me at least, most of the challenges in making beer truly sustainable really are. I'm very fortunate to be joined on this panel by three breweries who are very invested in their sustainability efforts and quite far ahead compared to a few other breweries on the market. And these are Sarah Luxon from Bristol's Wiper and True Brewery who recently installed a carbon capture and recycling machine so they can make beer with their own carbon dioxide rather than buying it in. Sam McMeekin from London's Gypsy Hill, who made a beer called Regenerator, which is made using regeneratively farmed barley and they reuse hops they've already used. So it's a beer that is truly carbon negative. And lastly, Jamie Delap, who is the managing director at Fine Ales and If you've been up to Glenfine to Finefest or just to visit the taproom, you'll know that it's in a very remote rural location that's a good hour and a half away from Glasgow. And so they have their own set of challenges in being a working farm and brewery. And they have their own set of challenges different to the other two city brewers. So it's a really interesting conversation, a bit mellower than the other ones we've published so far, because it's a slightly more serious topic. And there is a little guest appearance at the end from Darren Anley, who's the owner of Siren Craft Brew, who was sat in the audience and has a question for our panel during this conversation. So that's a bit of a brewer bonus there. 
But for now, let's head back to Glenfine and to Finefest for this fascinating long chat about brewing and sustainability. I hope you enjoy. Folks, thank you so much for joining me on this panel. Um, what I'd like you to do first is just to introduce yourselves, both to the, the crowd here and the people listening at home. Um, Sarah, do you want to go first and tell us a little bit about what you do at Wiper and True? Hi, yeah. Um, my name's Sarah. I am the taproom manager at Wiper and True. We are a Bristol-based brewery. Um, been going for 10 years. Um, recently moved into a facility that is five, was five times the production that our previous facility was able to produce. And um, so sustainability has been at the forefront of, of driving that move. Um, uh, and for myself, my own interests, I'm doing an MSc in sustainability. So uh, yeah, that's, that's why I'm here. Excellent. Jamie. So I'm Jamie. I'm sort of the um, owner managing director here at um, Fine Ales. Um, I think we're in a slightly different sort of scenario to many, many breweries. Um, you know, my family's had the farm here for sort of hundred and so years. So, you know, and, you know, when you're thinking about farming and managing the land up here, you're very used to thinking about the very long term. You know, we're sort of some trees recently came down that my grandfather planted. Um, and, you know, we're, we're putting up broadleaf that's not going to be there. It's not going to be really full size until probably my grandkids are um, fully grown. So um, <laughs> they're not either, they don't even exist yet. So <laughs> um, who knows? Maybe I won't have any grandkids. Um, but anyway, so, yep. So, so, you know, looking after the land, you naturally think about things in, in a long-term way. Um, so, and also, you know, where we are, this fine ales here, it's we very much consider ourselves as a product of the Glen. We are sort of intrinsically tied to the ecosystem here. So, you know, we're taking our water straight from the um, streams coming down the hill. So when it's raining, raining today, that's the water we're brewing with tomorrow. Or when we had a long dry spell like today, there are huge peat moors up on the hill, which we can perhaps talk a bit about later, uh, which is like a giant sponge letting the water down. We have to have our own effluent treatment plant because there's no towns um, sewers here. So we have to treat all the effluent before it goes out into the river. So that has to get to a very high clean level because um, it's a salmon river. Um, and we're totally sort of, you know, we're, we're, there's no gas grid. So that's, that's one of the challenges, again, that we'll talk about. Um, but we, again, offset said that, you know, we have opportunities because we're working here in the Glen. There's lots of different things we can do to offset our carbon footprint as well. So I'm sure we can talk about those too. Sam, what about you? Yes. Hi, everybody. Sam, I'm the co-founder of Gypsy Hill Brewery. We're based in South London, um, nine years old. So I guess one of the older dogs in the, in the London scene, at least. Um, from a sustainability side, we've really been working on a couple of really interesting projects uh, in the last 18 months that have yielded some, some amazing results. Um, largely, it's to do with our supply chain. We also had a couple of in-house innovations, which have really been, been amazing. Um, and we'll, we'll talk about both of them, I'm, I'm sure. But um, yeah, it's, it feels really good to make progress in sustainability because it can be a topic that sort of sits on your shoulders and is a bit overbearing and difficult to get, make any progress in. But the truth is, and I guess why I want to be more vocal about it, is that you can make progress um, and you can make big leap progress, not just incremental small progress, if you attack the right um, topics within your process chains. So um, it's really, really interesting to have done that work and to have made the progress we have, and, and there's more to come. Excellent. I look forward to hearing about that shortly. Jamie, we'll start with you because this is your party after all, and I'm especially interested to hear your perspective because unlike the other two breweries which are based in, in big cities, you're out here 
a good hour and a half away from, from an, a truly urban environment. So I'm sure that comes with its own set of challenges in terms of creating a brewery that's sustainable. What's, what's that been like in trying to build a sustainable brewery here? So I think, I think that's interesting. And, you know, it's a... Um and as I said, you know, because we are sort of a, a bit in the environment here, we, we have to sort of manage the land and manage the whole environment. It's, it's always been a challenge because, um, like you say, it's, it's hard to see how do you really get all your CO2 out of every step of your production. Um, so, you know, again, though, we, it comes with opportunities as well as, um, as well as threats, as it were, as well as challenges. Um, so... We're looking at, we're just um, over the course of the next 12 months, you'll see there's a new community-owned um, hydropower station just up the glen here. So we're looking at putting in a private line that'll connect us straight to that hydropower station. So, um, you know, it'll cost us, our, our share of the investment will be some, you know, it'll be well over £100,000. But at the same time, you know, it'll get us into sort of green power for everything, all of our electricity coming in the way. So at least I can see a way to fix that. I mean, I'll probably need to look at also doing uh, much, you know, we have some, a fairly small solar installation at the moment, but we'll be looking to put in a much bigger solar power installation. So pretty much in Argyle, if it's, if it's sunny, we'll be generating some power from the solar, but usually it's raining, so we'll have plenty of power from the hydro. So, um, <laughs> so that should, should, should sort out our electricity side of it. Windy too here, no? And wind, windy as well, but so the wind, the wind farms are... Um, so we're also... So another project we're looking at doing is putting in a big, um, really... It's a really a bit of a separate project, commercial um, battery. So you, because up here there's lots of... Um, wind and hydro and so they're generating at certain times of the day and not at other times of the day and so for that reason you actually see the electricity price um on the on the wholesale market that sometimes actually goes negative where they're actually paying people to take electricity off the grid so um so thereby putting a great big battery and on on grid connected battery you can tie into all of those wind farms and take in the power at that stage and then put it back out at the appropriate times as well so that's another sort of project we've got going i mean that won't really directly tie into the brewery as such but that'll be a, another side one that is interesting because i remember discussing loosely around this uh, at last year's fine fest and you said wind is something that's interesting to you but you've also got golden eagles nesting here and and uh, there's Exactly. Like, how will they deal with wind farms? Exactly. So we, we very much, I mean, you know, there's a, we had a survey done sort of 20 years ago, and they were like, you know, up at the top of the glen above the Walker's Bar, fantastic site to put, um, put, put a wind farm up. Can't see it from anywhere. Really big high flats. Work perfectly. But there's golden eagles up there, and, you know, just not an option. Can't do it. And, um, and you know, that's probably the right thing as well. The gold, golden eagles, there's just not that many of them. We're lucky enough to have sort of two pairs that live in the glen. That's, that's fair enough. That's e the way it is. Excellent. Sarah, what does sustainability mean for Wiper and True? And why don't you tell us a little bit about what the brewery is investing in to reduce its own environmental impact? Sure. So um, down in Bristol, we have just finished... Uh, building a 159 kilowatt solar array on the roof of our brewery. Um, this was started when we moved into the facility about 18 months ago, we started putting solar panels on the roof. Um, and the last of it was just installed two months ago. Um, and for May, at least, it means that we're like 69% self-sufficient, which we're really pleased about. Um, because like with the wind um, and, the, and the hydro, like you can feed that back into the grid and, and make a little bit of change off the back of that as well. So we're really pleased about how that's been going. Um, 
not least because our sustainability manager, Joe, he has a really cool app that shows you how much you're, you're taking every day. Um, and he gets very excited about that. Um, but we're, we've also just installed a Dallum carbon capture unit, um, which is just up and running as of two weeks ago. Um, uh, and that's going to that's gonna provide us with an awful lot of, of, of scope in terms of like our costs and, and, and room around our production quality as well, um, which we're really keen to manage. Um, but we're also working on um, a B Corp status, as in we've, we've been talking to a company called Zevro about carbon mapping and, uh, and, and, and working towards a net zero target. I'm interested later on in this chat getting into to B Corp and, and uh, what, that, what that means to both you as, as businesses and to, and to consumers. But uh, just, I'd love you to go into more detail about this CO2 recapture machine because you're only the second small brewery after GADS uh, in Kent to install one. Before then, I think the, the smallest brewery that had the technology was the Wellpart Brewery in Glasgow, where Tenants is produced. Um, so what, what does that machine do, and, and what, will it, what will it save in terms of sustainability for your brewery? So um, I'm not a brewer, just FYO. So apologies if my terminology is a little bit off. Um, but essentially, there are small filtration devices fitted into the blow-off arm of every CO2 tank with a little filter, uh, and they carry the CO2 that gets produced from fermentation off the top of the tank uh, to our carbon capture unit, which then filters it, purifies it, and liquefies it uh, for use back either straight back into the brewery um, or, or we, have a, we are looking into a, a, a bottling device and seeing how much that would, you know, that would cost so we could bottle the CO2 to make it more transportable. Um, our current projections, having only finished installing it two weeks ago, uh, whether it would potentially produce... 80 to 90 percent of the co2 we need in the brewery now obviously that's not a complete offset from that regard but the fact that we then don't have to buy 90 percent of our co2 given that being one of the highest costs on the production market right now um is is very very appealing um uh there are you know there's a, there's a chance down the line that it could produce 100 percent um and also we've been told that the quality of our co2 that we're putting out is better than that you can buy commercially as well so uh it's it's all kind of like working towards like a a a quality beer uh, assurance, and it, that is, it's quite exciting because most CO two that breweries buy is is a byproduct of fertilizer production, which is, is itself is like is quite that's quite nasty uh, in terms of uh, environmental impact. So it, to find alternatives for that is it's it's really positive. Sam, how is Gypsy Hill approaching sustainability, and what are you in, implementing at your brewery to reduce your own carbon footprint? Yeah, we're. Um the main project we've, we've started is working with regenerative farmers. Um, so about 18 months ago, I landed on uh, a group that were, had essentially established growing practices and were trying to roll out those growing practices across different farmers. Um, people who adhered to those growing practices would then, they would then buy their products and um, process it and, and, and sell it on. Um, they were mainly working in the wheat trade because most of what's grown in the country is wheat. But um, I asked them if they would do barley, uh, and they did. <laughs> so um, they, because of the regenerative nature of the, of the growth um, or the agricultural practices, uh, the difference in carbon sequestration is, is vast. Um, basic, the basic sort of national level stats are that a kilo of industrial barley emits in its life cycle about half a kilo of carbon. So that's for a kilo of barley, half a kilo positive of barley, of a carbon. 
Um, whereas this stuff, for a kilo of barley, it sequesters three and a half kilos of carbon. So it has a negative footprint, which if you think about it, when you start the brewing process, um, our average batch is about 1,200 kilos of, of, of barley. So if you're emitting half a kilo per kilo of barley, right, then you, your starting footprint on brew day is, is about 600 how, kilos. How many, how many kilos in a batch of Hepcat? <laughs> well, exactly. So yeah. 1,200, roughly, right, which we do twice a day. Um, so, you know, if, if it emits half a kilo of carbon per kilo of barley, then we're at about 600 kilos of carbon before we start per batch, 1,200 per day. Whereas if we're using barley with a negative carbon footprint of three and a half kilos, I should probably have pre-done these maths. Uh, <laughs> I haven't. Um, but it's thousands of kilos, so a couple of tons negative, as opposed to a ton or so positive. Um, what we've found, because we've done our own uh, carbon footprinting in the brewery, is that that difference offsets the entire rest of the process. And um, we've been able to make beer that has a negative carbon footprint. That, that's fascinating, because something I really want to see discussed in the industry, and right now, is that you know, there's lots of great processes, like CO2 recapture machines, like solar panels, like wind power. But I do feel like industrial agriculture... Uh, is the elephant in the room when it comes to sustainability for brewing. Um, especially, I mean, barley, we grow a lot of that in the UK, but, uh, but barley is, as we've just learned right now, is uh, intensely, it has a big carbon footprint. And then we're using hops, and if half the hops grown in the world now are, are produced in Yakima. So we're reliant on the, the supply chain of something that comes from 6,000 miles away, itself a very industrial process. So um, I guess... Well, barley, Matt, barley is actually, of all of the f inputs of the brewing process of a single batch, and obviously varies site by site, but barley's got the largest footprint. It's bigger than gas, it's bigger than CO2, um, as in emitted CO2 from fermentation. So, like, that's our, if you apply that 80-20 rule, barley's our 80. It's got the biggest, the biggest contribution, um, which I think is, takes some people by surprise. You assume it's gas, because we burn gas to boil our beer, and, you know, that's, it's a lot, but... Barley is actually, you know, about 40% more than, um, than the gas. For, like industrial agriculture, farming is intensely uh, impactful on, on carbon footprints. And I saw you nodding along there, Sarah. Is there anything you'd like to add in terms of, like, how do you feel about the impact of industrial agriculture on brewing and what could the brewing industry be doing, much like what Sam's doing, to reduce that impact? Um, so I don't know how familiar you guys are with the terms of scope one, scope two and scope three emissions, but um, scope three emissions when it's dealing with the supply chain of what you're brewing is always going to be the hardest for an individual producer to deal with because as much as you rely on these supply chains integrally um, in order to produce a product, um, and, uh, but you aren't responsible for what they do or, what they, or how they do it. Um, so the best thing is you can do is form good relationships with these people uh, uh, ask them questions, um, hope that they're, they're as conscious as you are uh, as like making changes to the way, to the way we ruin our planet or not ruin it, hopefully one day. Uh, and, uh, and, and make sure that you, you, know, you work with people who are, consider themselves accountable and are happy to hand you the information that you need to make the right decisions. Jamie, is there anything you'd like to add in terms of how you're sourcing your raw materials in, in terms of sustainability? I, th I think I would... Um so I think our approach, I think I'm agreeing a little bit there. So um, the, you say, the, the technical term is this sort of scope two or scope three. Scope two is really all the stuff you directly do yourselves. And scope three is when you consider 
the impact of your choices, where, where your products come from, the raw materials come from, and where the stuff goes to. I've slightly taken the approach that us as a sort of small brewery, we really actually have to do, because I, mean, I think the whole of society, we've all got to do our bit. We've all got to get everything in order. And, you know, as a small brewery, the amount of influence we can really have, I mean, okay, you can make your choices, maybe choose a different, different barley suppliers, different grain methods, but really, you know, on a macro level, society needs every business to do its bit. So I'm kind of focusing hard on really our scope two, the stuff that we can directly control ourselves. And I think, you know, I, I don't want to try and, you know, that's our responsibility. I, I feel personally, viscerally, that really is our job as every small business in the country and large businesses. But we all have to look after the particularly the direct stuff that we can do. So I'm, I, for us, we're very much focused on much more the stuff that we're doing ourselves. And yes, all the other bits of supply chain bottles, CO2, packaging materials, um, barley, everyone else, that's all got to come into line as well. But as society, we only get there if we all do our bit. And that means start with the stuff you can do close to home and really focus on that. So I've not spent much time on the raw, raw materials side because I'm a philosophical choice. Jamie, breweries are recently classified as the government as being... We're we going to get a bit of banjo to accompany us. This is nice. <laughs> <laughs> breweries were recently... Uh, classified by the government as energy-intensive businesses. And you essentially heat stuff up, cool it down, spend an awful lot of time on logistics. We've just talked about the agricultural impact as well. So can a brewery, this is a bit philosophical, can a brewery truly be sustainable? Is this something you believe in? Um, yes, I think it can do. Um, but no, I don't think it's easy. And I think it's going to cost us all quite a lot of money. And we're going to have to make changes to do it. So... Um, you know, it is much easier. You know, so let's say in clean electricity is doable. Um, you know, the, the country, like I say, here we've, we're lucky we're surrounded by um, renewable electricity sources. So we, we can actually plumb straight into sort of clean electricity. That's not an option for most businesses. But we know that, there, we know that it is possible to move all of our electricity generation in this country to clean. So that, that bit works. Um, where it gets... Um, difficult because our other, other main consumption, all of us as breweries, is either gas or oil for generating steam. Um, and that obviously, you know, if you're burning that, every kilo of gas or oil that you're burning is, um, is not getting there. So then you've kind of got to look to see, well, if, I, if we're going to take that out of the equation, first you've got to really look at um, how do you reduce the amount of steam that you need. And I think, I don't know, probably most of us faced with all of these energy prices. I mean, I'm certainly, I think sort of um, pre-COVID, we were up at sort of 8% evaporation rates. So that's 8% of the water that goes into the, into the copper were driving off during the boil. So all of that is steam. And we've cut that down to sort of um, nearer near to 4% now. So that straight away is sort of halving the amount of gas we're putting into the process um, but then I think we then have to look at how do we actually move that steam generation onto electricity because electricity can be clean steam and um, steam um, sorry gas and oil can never be clean so we have to think think our way through that and that's not an easy challenge when you're operating a brewery at scale you know if you're a small brewery there are lots of small small electrical steam generators out there but a large scale again that needs money it needs engineering and it needs some serious thought. And I don't know quite how I'm going to solve that yet. Sarah, do you think sustainability in brewing is, is truly a feasible goal? Um, yes, I think there's lots of caveats to that and there's lots of kind of like moving the goalposts. But um, yeah, I think because there is a, 
a tangible way to make energy sustainable. And essentially what we're doing is like energy transfer, heating and cooling liquids. Um, I think there's got to be a way to do it. How so do you can, I, can I ask, what, what, do you, what exactly do you mean? Like what is, what is truly sustainable? Uh, I mean, Every step of the process has got a zero carbon footprint or like what exactly are we talking about? So I'm going to use an example here. Um, there is a brewery that advertises itself as being carbon negative. Uh, and I, uh, we, we call it the brewery, we're, the, the, the Scottish brewery or the brewery that will not be named. Uh, but uh, we all know it's Brewdog and they, they do push this idea that they're carbon negative. And I, because I'm a very dull person really, I've spent a lot of time uh, reading papers to try and understand how an operation of that scale, based just on the barley alone, uh, I don't believe it. Uh, but, uh, so, but, and I also, I want to talk a little bit more, more about B Corp, and I see a lot of breweries, you know, you see Toast Ale and, and breweries like that who reuse waste bread, which is great, and I think uh, those projects are really cool, uh, but they become B Corps, and they push this idea that the sustainability is almost, uh, you know, I'm wearing Patagonia shorts. The whole, the whole idea of uh, the brand is like built around this idea of sustainability. Uh, but I guess it's because I'm a journalist. I want to see the, the hard data, and that's really hard to see. Like, I want to see a spreadsheet that says, yeah, we are net negative minus 300 kilos of carbon dioxide this year, and no one will give you that information. And, I, and that's, that's incredibly frustrating to me. So the, one, of the, one of the, I think, you know, from industrial agriculture to logistics to the use of aluminium um, to the fact that, that you have to heat things up and cool them down for weeks on end, how, how, is a, how do breweries really become sustainable? Yeah. It's a little more of a philosophical question because I want it, but I also want to be realistic about how we're going to achieve it. Yeah. Well, if, it, if it's in the data, that's one thing, and that, that's easy enough. I mean, Brewdog's mega report, Make Earth Great Again, shows that a can of punk's got a footprint of 293 grams of carbon per can, right? It's an eye on 500 grams per pint of punk. So <clears throat> they are, by their own definition, not carbon negative, they're carbon positive. They are claiming to offset all that via this forest, and that's a whole separate thing, whether it's working or not. Like, that's for the life cycle assessment analysts who do soil analysis to see how much carbon is actually being sequestered into this forest. We all know, well, I, it takes 50 years for a forest to truly suck in carbon. So that's, you know, that's a thing on the face of it, but it's a dark alley where we don't need to go down. They are emitting 293 grams per can. So, you know, they're not carbon negative. Um, our beer we've got on a bar right here, Regenerator, has got a minus 40 gram footprint per pint. Right? Now, we are not a carbon-negative brewery, but we have made a carbon-negative beer using regenerative barley and using a hop innovation we've made in-house. So, um, you know, are we, we, will, we are aspiring to fast become a truly carbon-negative brewery because the more of this barley we use and the more we are able to do the other thing uh, in the brewery that we do, uh, it will help our footprints and it will get us to that point. We're actually reclaiming zero, but the... the Cake badges we're releasing, for example, for our new carbon-negative beers have got the footprint per pint on them, uh, and you'll be able to see. And it's for the, carb, for the lager and the pale that are coming out uh, later this month, it's <clears throat> minus 24 grams and minus 32 grams, respectively. So, like, the data's possible. Um, for a whole business to qualify, like, it, that's, it's much more difficult. We've got to get enough of this, as I said, barley moving through our system 
in order to make it happen. So it's, it's, it's a big deal. In terms of like B Corps and a more holistic view of sustainability, um, you know, uh, you talk about the, the, the washing of it. Like big businesses have generally got reasonable governance standards. Small businesses tend not to. I think it's a much bigger deal for small businesses to achieve B Corps than it is for a large one because listed companies have to adhere to most of the practices B Corps are acquiring anyway, apart from environmental ones. Um, so, like, generally, B Corps is like a big business plus environmental, you know? Um, for me, as a small business, I kind of have to choose where I spend my time and efforts, and I'm choosing carbon negativity and pushing on the research on that front, and I've kind of put B Corps to the side for now because I, I care more about getting my footprint down, to be quite honest, and I think my governance standards are reasonable. Um, so that, that's just my, my take on that one. So I suppose that's really how Gypsy Hill is seeing sustainability from all angles. From a governance side, we've got a very professional board. We've got good, we're employee-owned. We've got employee councils. We've got various things. And in general, our standard, I think, is good. We can always be better, but it's not bad. Uh, and from the, um, uh, from the environmental side, we're working hard on carbon footprint reduction strategies. You know, we've got loads of scope two ones that we can do, which I'm looking forward to do. They're just capex intensive. Exactly. <laughs> they are like for us, you know, the Darlam system those guys have got is great, but you know, we need 120 grand for it, and uh, and I'm looking forward to getting it so that we can do it. But um, I also like the fact we've been able to attack the biggest part of the problem, and and use and solve that one to actually have the biggest impacts on our footprint too. So it's, I think what you're doing with Bali sounds fascinating and that, that's a huge positive. But what about hops? Because the majority of hops being used in the UK are being imported from the US or Germany, which between them grow over 80% of the hops in the world. I spoke to a contact at Bath Haas, one of the hop suppliers, one of the global hop suppliers, but they work in the UK. They told me that UK hops now account for 0.3% of global yields. So do you think they're... they're needs to be an urgent focus on uh, regenerative, regenerative British hop farming. Jamie, you're nodding. No, actually, I'm, 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 I'm nodding because I'm interested in the question, but I think the answer is quite possibly no. Um, and I don't know if, you, if you've been to, um, out to Yakima and you've seen, seen the hop growing area there, um, and, you know, talking to... I was, I was there a few years ago with some British hop growers... And basically what you've got in Yakima is almost perfect hop-growing territory. Um, so the level of inputs that they need to grow every kilo of hops in Yakima is potentially, and I don't know the numbers, and so I'll be happily corrected by someone who's more knowledgeable than I am, but the impression, I, the understanding I took away from that trip, um, where we spoke to a lot of hop growers, um, let's say a couple of British ones and a lot of different American ones, is it's just the level of inputs you need in Yakima particularly, but um, other the right bits of the States as well, is just way lower than the level of inputs that you need over here. They've got far less disease pressure. The growing conditions, it's basically a de an irrigated desert, which is perfect growing conditions for hops. So because of all of those reasons and because they're working at huge scale, I would expect that the carbon footprint of the hops as they leave the farm, is lower in um, Yakima than it would be here. And actually, the amount of carbon that's emitted by shipping a container across the, across the ocean is not what we imagine. So, you know, we're all, we all imagine something that's from close by has to be, by definition, more sustainable. That is often not the case. 
It's the same with tomatoes. You know, tomatoes grown in um, Spain, where they've got the sunshine, you don't have to heat the greenhouses, can often be a lower carbon footprint than tomatoes grown in the UK, where they have to put heat into the greenhouses to keep them warm enough. So it's not always as linear as just thinking an export bad, locally sourced good. And I suspect that's probably true in hops, but I'd love to see some data. It's fascinating. Sarah, I'm interested in your thoughts on, like... Um where we could go with UK hop farming and, and if uh, Wiper and True are looking into investing in, in more British hops? So definitely the British hop question is a bit of a, a, bit of a puzzle. Uh, you know, we're strapped for land, we've got pest problems. Um, the, the cost of growing anything in the UK is just increasing as per production. Um, but uh, some, some of our recent research told us that buying in Slovenian hops was somewhere that would go, take us in, the, in a kind of like a carbon-friendly direction. So we recently made a beer with Slovenian hops. Um, the idea being that these hops had a similar profile uh, to New Zealand hops. Um, so we produced the beer, an IPA called Upside Down, using uh, Styrian Dragon. And uh, it was incredibly like mango and coconut forward, um, exactly the kind of profiles you would want in your in your New England. And um, But with much less of the, the carbon footprint, uh, and some of the research they're doing in, in, in Europe, in Central Europe, around hop farming is, is really promising. I think to, to produce that in the UK is going to be really, really hard just because of our, our land constraints. Um, hop farming is incredibly land intensive. Um, it requires quite a lot of space. Uh, personally, my dissertation as project is on, um, uh, on whether hop farming can be produced on smaller scales in like companion planting kind of scenarios. But... Uh, I don't know how feasible that is. It's more like a theory at the moment. Yeah, I was just going to say, I just want to be clear. I think there's lots of very good reasons for buying British hops, but I, I just, my point's just on the carbon footprint, that it's, it's not there. Because it is, you know, you go out and you see, there are, there are single farms in, um, in Yakima that are bigger than the entire UK crop um, size here. So you added up all of the acres planted in the UK, and that can add up to one single farm in Yakima. So that sort of scale and their ability to actually do that well. Now, again, hops, you know, I think the big challenge with hops is actually the drying. Because, um, again, you're, there's a lot of energy goes into drying hops. Um, so, again, it's, it's every bit of the supply chain's got to do their part. But it's not always small is best. I'm not saying it isn't, but I, but I suspect that may be the case. But I do love UK hops. There's some cracking new UK hops out there. So there's lots of other reasons. Sam, have you got anything you'd like to add on the use of UK hops? Is it something you're looking into at Gypsy Hill, uh, expanding on? For it? Yeah, we, we, we have been expanding it a bit. Um, we were working with a farm, which unfortunately has, has gone under recently, which, to your point, Sarah, just shows how difficult it can be to hop farm. It's a decade-long project before you've even really started and you'd be financed your whole way through that. So, like, it's, it's really not easy. I guess just to bring it back to regenerative practices, what I'm really curious about and I know nothing about as it stands is, you know, can you regeneratively farm hops? And would that, how would that, to what degree would that affect the footprint of the resultant hops, you know? Because if you can go from positive half kilo to minus three and a half kilos in barley... Like, I'm kind of a fan, right? I'm in a bit of a whirlwind of like, well, let's, if we regeneratively farm everything, <laughs> right, then we've, then we've got, we haven't just brought the footprint of agriculture from sort of 20% of our global footprint to zero. We've actually got it from 20% contributor to a 40% detractor, right? Which seems pretty remarkable because, uh, like, we're discussing billions of pounds of investment in machines sucking carbon out of the air and it's like, actually, 
let's regeneratively farm our way out of this problem. But I, I suspect I'm being naive in that. I'm sure there's lots of reasons why it's, uh, that vision is, is going to take at least some time before we get there. But I would love to see what regeneratively farmed hops really looks like. Because it is companion growing. It's, it's poly-seeded fields, right? And you can, you know, they're grown in lanes, these hops. And really all the barley is, is grown in lanes with rapeseed, with peas, you know, and then more barley and strips like that. You could do that with hops. Um, but I don't know the results of that. And I think research is, is, it is being done by a few hop farms I've talked to. Um, and I wait to see what that, what that looks like. Jamie, I've got a question I think you'll really enjoy. Uh, how feasible is something like a deposit return system in terms of sustainability from a com consumer perspective? Is it, is it something you think will, will happen when they get it right? Could it be valuable towards sustainability? Right. Um, so for those that don't know, I have been spending a ridiculous amount of my life um, working on the um, Scottish deposit return scheme, um, trying to get it into a format that works, works for the industry and works for everyone. Um, so bottom line, actually, I am a firm believer that a deposit return scheme can and should be a part of a long-term solution. You know, we have to use the scarce materials that we have on this planet. We have to use them well. And as businesses, we have to recognize that getting to net zero means we've got to make changes. And so we can't just fight against change just because it's going to be inconvenient for us. So there have been some particular problems, but... So there's been a real issue trying to do Scotland separate to the rest of the UK has created a whole series of problems. And then there have been other problems that the Scottish Government has got control of some things but not of other things. Um, so some things are Westminster and some things are, are Scottish Government. And so faced with that sort of dilemma, what's the Scottish Government tried to do? They tried to build the most ambitious um, deposit return scheme in the world. And what they got was the most ex complex and the most expensive deposit return scheme in the world. So I, th I think I can, sitting here... Um, whatever the day is today, Saturday 2nd of June 2023. At the moment, the legislation says that the Scottish re Deposit Return Scheme is going to happen on the 1st of March next year. I'm prepared to give you all a pretty firm forecast that by within the next two to three weeks, that'll get pulled and it'll actually be happening um, at the same time for the whole of the UK. So I actually think that's a good thing and it's kind of what should have happened in the first place. The, doing it just alone in Scotland, which breaks up all of the UK supply chains, adds so much cost and complexity. But fundamentally, we need to recycle a lot more of our products. Um, so, and you know, it means making changes to consumer behaviour. So it might be appropriate, you know, I think possibly starting without glass is quite a good decision, but ultimately we need to get glass, we need to get... You know, we, we should be going for like 98, 99% recycling rates. Close as we can get to 100% of everything we, we, we use goes back and is recycled because it uses far less energy to recycle glass or to recycle a can than it does to make it from virgin materials. So absolutely, that can be a part of the equation, but it's got to be done well. Now, the one thing I can say is, you know, there's a lot, and, you know, and I'm not, not me, but a lot of other very smart people have been working hard on this for the last year and a half, two years, trying to work out how to make this work. There are really good lessons that we can learn from all the work that's gone in, and I hope we can now carry those over and build a UK scheme that does work. Fantastic. Can I ask uh, if any of the panel, uh, their companies are looking into becoming B, B Corps? B, did you say B Corps? Was I pronouncing it yes, wrong? Yes, we are, yeah. B Corps. Wiper and True R. So... This, uh, I'm really interested in this because I see... I, I walked past a billboard for 
uh, a brand called Funkin Nitro Cocktails. Uh, and I hope I said that right. Um, and it, but on the advert next to the bus stop was a massive B Corp uh, logo. And I just thought to myself, what does that mean to customers? So, like, what, what is the actual benefit for Wiper and Chew in getting that B Corp status? So there definitely is a marketing aspect to it. And I think, unfortunately, it's the marketing that's kind of diluting the purpose of the B Corp to begin with. It's really, really good uh, to have it on your, on your branding, on your marketing, on your billboards, on your pump clips, whatever you want, want to put it on, uh, because people see it as a mark of their mo- these, this company's moving in the right direction. But to echo one of, the, one of you guys saying something earlier about how it's very, very different on the, on the billboard of a big company versus, versus the, the website of a small one, um, because those things are so much easier to achieve for people who already have all these government-implemented standards to begin with. My interest in the B Corp, our interest in the B Corp, if you're applying for B Corp status, only about a third of the caveat questions that they 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 uh, take data from when they're evaluating you actually have to do with the environment the other two-thirds about um staff welfare about about company ethos about um uh brand representation um because it is a holistic approach the idea is that it's no point just like like some companies like just offsetting everything there's no point in doing that it doesn't achieve anything for the environment it just achieves something for you um they want to get measurable data about how the, com- how the employees feel, what they get paid, whether they feel looked after, whether they feel represented. Um, uh, and so that's why that makes up only like less than a third, probably, of all, all the data that you can collect on the B Corp status. For us, we think it is a reflection of our status in the industry. Um, it would be a reflection of, of everything we've been kind of like striving for. So it is something that we've had in mind for a few years. We've worked with carbon um, footprinting services before we made the move from our old site to our new one um, to try and figure out exactly how that change would impact our carbon output. Um, and so and so, working along the framework that B Corp offer is a really, really good tool to use in order to get there. Um, I am not saying it answers, it means that one of the things that B Corp ask is, they never ask, are you carbon neutral? Are you carbon negative? They never, that's not one of their caveats. It's like they... They want you to demonstrate that you are making effort in the right direction. Um, so it has absolutely nothing to do with carbon negativity. Uh, and so, but unfortunately, I think some greenwashing has gone quite a long way to impact to harm, harming that 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 image. Yeah, I think that, that it's uh, that's what I worry about is the the greenwashing aspect. Like our brands applying for it, so they can say we've done our bit for sustainability because we we now have this accreditation. Sam, do you have anything to add on on, on B Corp? Is it something that Gypsy Hill is looking into uh, achieving? I, I have started the application. Um, it's a big one. It takes ages. We've got a small team, uh, and again, I, I saw it as we will do it because it it, it is getting. It is a well-known mark to show a, a holistically sound, you know, a company, right? In, in the round, I would say. And I'm, I'm a fan of being known for that. <laughs> um, but I, 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 I haven't pursued the application since I started it because all my time has been spent focusing on getting our carbon projects across the line. And I'm comfortable with that uh, for now. Once we've made like enough headway there, and like we've really got a, a way forward with that whole project, I will I'll move more on the B Corp side of things. But um, you know, 
Part of the reason, it's interesting, Sarah, you're right, people don't say, oh, are you carbon negative or neutral? There is so much confusion. I mean, if only everyone here knew how confusing net zero is. Like, net zero, I mean, I don't even understand it, and I have spent hours on this topic. Like, it is really, because it's not reducing to zero, it's not offsetting to zero, it's like halving your footprint or something like that, depending on what size you are. Like, it is, it's complicated, and the more complicated we make these definitions, the less consumer engagement they'll be with them. So, you know, until carbon footprinting has got more of a sort of banner uh, representative logo or thing for it, uh, it may end up being a bit of a back roll approach. Um, but that's pretty sad because we, you know, we're in an environmental crisis that needs solving. Um, and for me, I'm focusing on footprint and the rest of it will, will, will catch up. I'm, gonna, I'm now going to uh, open questions up to the floor. If you have a question on sustainability for our panel, raise your hand and I will uh, make my way out to you in the audience and you can, uh, I'll give you the microphone so you can ask and so the people at home listening to this podcast in a couple of months can hear you as well. Um, do you measure the impact of your digital, like your digital touch points, like your website, email newsletters, and do you actively... Uh, act to re reduce the carbon footprint of those touch points as well? So our carbon accounting company includes everything uh, and it includes digital. Um, so, so yes, um, in terms of offsetting that, again, it's, it, it's such a tiny footprint that we're focusing on the larger impact elements of what we do as opposed to the smaller ones. Um, I hope one day we're worried about the footprints of our emails because although they are there, at the moment, they're, they're way out overshadowed by other stuff. Um, so that's where the focus is going. But they are measured as part of the scope one, two, three emissions. Any more questions? Yes, Darren. Thank you. I've got a question on uh, DRS, funnily enough. Um, so I that's think one of, the things, <laughs> one of the things that struck me with the conversation uh, that I sat in, that, that, that you ran, Jamie, was uh, the, the drive to do this and the rush to do this uh, around was around uh, you know obviously being better at recycling, which I get, and, uh, and obviously we all want to improve on that. But I think one of the things that struck me was uh, no one has has moved from curbside recycling, uh, and uh, to see whether that there was measurable benefits from curbside to this. Could, do you know what uh, where we are from a UK or a Scottish perspective in terms of what curbside recycling is actually giving us right now, and what they were hoping to get from this this uh, yeah. DRS scheme? So, um, it's a, on glass, which has the, the been the most hotly contested, there's two slightly different definitions. So, um, so the Scottish government quotes 61% currently being recycled through the curbside recycling. Now, I think that is 61% of all glass, not 61% of bottled glass. So, British glass would say it was near a 70% currently being recycled, and they, have, they say perhaps a perfect glass recycling system, curbside. And, you know, glass is the most suitable for curbside recycling because, you know, it's the heaviest to take back to the store and therefore the least likely that people will actually do it. Um, so, so people are hoping that we can get um, up to a 90% with curbside recycling. Um, but um, there's definitely 
deposit return schemes achieving over 90%, 95%, of total recycling through a deposit return scheme. So you can get higher through, through that. But that is where potentially, like I say, I think the UK government is probably right not to include glass initially. Let's see how it works on plastics and cans, if we can get all of that, because that, those are not recycled, so as to anything like as high a percentage point through curbside recycling. So if we can get those up in, uh, into sort of 95, 96, 97%, that will be genuine progress over what anyone's managed to achieve with, um, with curbside recycling at the moment. Yep. Any more questions? Yes, at the back there. I'll just... Uh drop down speaking for continuity interesting comment from the drs i i've just i recently um well last year i worked for a local authority in waste and recycling so i think local authorities share the frustrations with what's happened with drs as well um but i just wondered the panel's um awareness on carbon capture from enhanced weathering break it down a little bit more yeah no problem. Um, there's, we've literally just started looking into this a bit more, but um, spreading wind dust, grit dust on land. Yeah, okay. Um, so four, four tons of grit dust on, on land effectively captures a ton of carbon uh, through the enhanced weathering process. Um, so I just wondered, yeah. Uh, I've only comments? read an article about it on BBC website or something, and I thought, I mean, great. You know, any innovation that speeds it up sounds good. I, there's usually a downside to stuff, and that, those always make the unknown unknowns always make me a bit nervous. But um, I mean, sounds sounds great if we can use essentially waste slag to to accelerate um, you know sequestration, uh, and and there's no otherwise no impacts of them. I mean, of course that sounds good. Uh, I haven't yet I've yet to see it play a role in agriculture, um, but I'd be keen to. I'll maybe catch you after. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I've got one more question. I think it was really fascinating hearing from the three of you what you're doing internally at your breweries to try and become more sustainability. But how do you make your customers care about it as well? Because like you've all said, it, everyone has to do their bit. Sarah, how do you think Wiper and True gets your customers to go, yes, yeah, sustainability is really important? Um, so without kind of like leaning on this too heavily, um, marketing. <laughs> um, we kind of wanted everything about our new facility to kind of echo uh, the brand ethos and, uh, and, and the vision that we had for ourselves. So even opening, you know, rebuilding a, a 500 capacity taproom venue, we were like, we want it to be green. We want it to use like uh, um, recycled materials and... Um, uh, wildflowers to increase biodiversity in what is essentially a car park. Um, that was a, a, a massive kind of like project for us because obviously marketing goes so much further than the emails and the and the and the ads and the cans, right? Um, so everything about our our redesign was intended to kind of echo. We want to be we want to be eco friendly, um, and uh, and. So our customers now coming into the building, they start to feel that from the very minute they step foot in it. Um, you know, for those people who are discovering our brand for the first time, um, it, there's information about um, about how to access our website and all of this information on the back of the can and uh, and just making it more accessible and more tangible for people. I think is is quite goes quite a long way. Um, 
just yeah, just plastering it on a on billboards doesn't always get people's attention. They just walk past or drive past and don't pay any attention. So it's about kind of like that interaction uh, on a small scale. Jamie, are there any efforts Finales are putting into uh, raising awareness on sustainability for your customers? Well, I think the um, I think I agree, agree actually a lot with um, what Sam was saying. It's a um, it's about um, you know, your whole brand, everything about your business has to fit together consistently. If it doesn't, your business doesn't work. So everything you do has to fit together. So it is about, therefore, if you're serious about sustainability, you've got to, got to build it into everything that you do as a business. And to a degree, you know, what do we do to try and make our consumers care about, about the environment? Well, we want to bring them here, show them what our environment is, show them how important the environment is. We can show them when you're all up here in the Glen, you know, you can see the trees that we planted behind the brewery before we built the new brewery that's there. You know, we don't call ourselves carbon negative because we planted those trees, but <laughs> we, we know, we, we're looking after the land. You're here in an area where this is fundamental to who we are. So I hope that everything that we do as a business is sending the message that what we are is a product of our environment and we hope that our consumers will therefore value that and take that forward into how they think about us and hopefully how they think about all of their choices. And, you know, and ultimately, I suppose, the deposit return scheme is saying put 20 pence on every bottle and then you'll care about it. I don't know. But... <laughs> Sam, you told us about this fantastic regenerative barley project, and I'm, I'm going to go and try uh, a bit of that beer later, uh, hoping it's still on. It's a, quite a thirsty crowd. Um, but how do you get that information to your customers and make, make that something interesting to them and something they appreciate? Well, so I think this kind of... I mean, I agree with everything these guys have said, but I, this also works the other way around. Customers are interested in this. They're not interested in it because of anything that I say or even that anything of, that any brewery or these two guys are saying, this is something that is capturing the zeitgeist year after year after year, is accelerating. Um, so actually, marketing ourselves as, as sustainable companies is future-proofing our business. You know, The fact that it overlaps with our own ethos and our ethics and what we'd like to do, uh, great. Win, win, win. Um, you know, if we, if we are able to... Uh, beat other breweries in, in the competition uh, who don't care about sustainability um, <clears throat> because we've done it and consumers care, then, then fantastic. I think that's kind of just being a responsible business owner uh, and also a strategic one. So, um, you know, consumers are caring more and more and uh, I want to just fuel that by giving them products and storylines and, and, you know, and, uh, and evidence of a, of a business that, that shows it cares about the same things they do. That's brilliant. Um, this whole panel has been fascinating and I appreciate the three of you lending your time and your insight on uh, the most important story in beer at the moment. It's something that needs to be discussed constantly. Uh, so thank you all. Can you please uh, give them a big round of applause? Do you know what? At the end of that conversation, Jamie came up to me and said, oh, I wish you'd asked me about B Core. By the way, I just learned when I recorded this episode that it's B Core and not B Corp. So there you go. There's a bit of semantics for you. But I'm fascinated by B Corp and how, what does it mean to people? What 
tangible benefit does it bring to sustainability, sticking a logo on your can or bottle of beer? Maybe I'm just being too cynical about it. It is something that's really hard to get. But I hope myself and other people invested in talking about beer dig into that topic in the months and years to come, because I think there's plenty to talk about there. A couple of things before I do go. Firstly, we will be back in Glenfine in June this year. So get your tickets at finefest.com. We're taking a slightly different approach, mostly looking at beer styles, talking about how beer is made and really focusing on tasting beer. So free beer, basically, if you come to our talks this year. Do you know what's even better than that? We're going to have our own bar, the Origins Bar. So you will be able to get a beer right by the stage and not have to leave the talks if your glass suddenly becomes empty as well. We're really thrilled about taking what we've done at Fine Fest for the last few years to the next level. And thank you to AD and Jamie at Fine Ales for letting us do that. Once you've got your tickets to Fine Ales, make sure you head to our subscription page at patreon.com forward slash pellicalmag, where you can subscribe to Pellicle from as little as a pound a month or as much as you can afford. Now, Pellicle will always be free to read and to listen to, but we are a business, we're a magazine that wants to pay our contributors more money to make what they do because we think that will lead to better content. And we can only do this if people hit that subscribe button and give us a little bit of money. Think about it. The price of a pint once a month. You give that to us and I will spend it on hiring amazing writers, photographers and illustrators and in supporting our editorial team of myself, Katie Mather and Lily Waite to make sure we're producing the best reading material and listening material as we possibly can. That website, again, is patreon.com forward slash pellicalmag. That's it from me this time. I've got one more Fine Fest episode coming up in the next few days. Hopefully it won't take me too long to get it ready. Until then, I've been Matthew Curtis and you have been listening to the Pellicle Podcast. Thanks for tuning in and I'll see you next time. 